Hello, Gretchen Bona. Welcome to episode 47 of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. Today, I'm very excited to have Enrique Alan Olivares Pelayo here, organizer for Just Communities Arizona and doctoral student at the U of A to discuss carceral landscapes in Arizona and alternatives to funding carceral systems. Enrique, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast today. Can you share how your experience of incarceration in Arizona informs your scholarly work? Sure, I'd be happy to. My scholarly work is informed by my lived experience of incarceration, primarily through a method called autoethnography. So splitting into its three constituent parts, you have auto, so self, ethno, culture, and graphy writing. So writing about culture mediated through me the self as both the researcher and the data point. That data is primarily gathered through memory, somatic recall, uh, site visitation, and putting myself back in the places where those memories were engendered, and then writing not only evocatively and thick description of what those memories are, because as autoethnographers, we're very cognizant of the fact that memory becomes an outside frame of reference. It's not a truth the way that an objectivist research model, a causal research model, would define truth. It is subjective. And so understanding that memory is subjective, we then seek to situate that memory in a broader theoretical context, in a broader observable context of what the culture is. And in a closed space, like a prison, where it is very difficult to get qualitative research into or out of a prison, autoethnography is one of the primary means of learning about the societies that form inside of prisons, which are uh, very difficult for outsiders to access. And so that lived experience informs my reading of theory. It informs my reading of causal data presented through orthodox chronological means. It informs my writing in the sense that it gives me a space from which to raise up the importance of lived experience in the academy. Because there are some things that you can't know unless you've lived them. You can observe them, you can write about them, but you can't know them the way that somebody who has lived them can know them. And raising up the value of emotion in research, raising up the value of recall in research, and highlighting the oftentimes invisible godlike claim of an objectivist researcher who says that because they use a certain method or they have a methodological preference that their data is more scientific or rigorous than someone who has been there and lived that. I really appreciate that because I don't think that Mainstream academia really prioritizes lived experience at all. And I mean, I, it depends on the discipline, but anthropology had colonial origins. Like there is this history of academics taking that posture of being like the all-knowing God that's bringing knowledge to whatever they're observing. Um, and I think that's why your interventions are so important. So thank you. Thank you for that. Your work focuses on, quote, the production, maintenance, and daily experience of carceral landscapes in the U.S. How did growing up in Tucson, which is a very heavily policed area, both with the criminal legal system, but also with the immigration system, very heavy policing here, it's uh, very much a carceral landscape here. So 
how did growing up here inform this area of focus for you? My experiences of Tucson being a carceral landscape began through my own involvement with the use, sale, and purchasing of narcotics. Um, I became substance dependent in eighth grade, and by freshman year, I had been expelled from my high school. Now, my high school was affluent. My high school had experienced many overdose deaths of a student body that was primarily white, upper class, not just upper middle class, upper class. And at the time that I was a freshman in high school, they were in the midst of what is now, in hindsight, referred to as the beginning of the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. But my experience is that there is no beginning to the opioid epidemic. It's been with communities of color. It's been with Mexican barrios. It's been in Black neighborhoods for decades and decades. What it was the beginning of, in my opinion, was the... uh, prevalence of heroin use among upper middle-class white teens Mm. was new in Tucson. And so I came of age right in the middle of all of that. The first time I was ever arrested was at 15, and it began a series of arrests that transpired throughout the state. I always experienced my arrests through a certain lens of privilege. I have parents who had the means to help me through legal processes, had the wherewithal to try and put me into substance abuse classes. I was exposed to best practices, but at the time was my best hope for recovery from substance use. Yeah. I wasn't able or willing or whatever the case may be to make those changes. And so I was arrested and saw the inside of jails, I saw the inside of courthouses in a way that certainly my parents had never predestined for me. Like arrest and and all that stuff was not part of their world. It was becoming part of mine. And it was becoming part of mine in a way that was completely out of anything I'd ever seen in real life, except for like portrayed through popular media, like movies and stuff. I mean, when I was 16 years old, my my dealer was killed at first in Wetmore and then an altercation with Oro Valley PD. Now, you can ask, what was Oro Valley PD doing down at first in Wetmore? And that was one of my first jarring experiences with carcerality. Where so is first in Wetmore? First in Wetmore is inside of city limits. It's not Oro Valley. Sun, and it's miles away from Oro Valley. Did you grow up in Oro Valley? I didn't. Okay. The high school that I was referring to is called Catalina Foothills. Okay. So Oro Valley PD gets wind of heroin dealing on campus and follows it to this kid. I mean, the kid that they killed, I don't even think he was 18. And if he was... Wow. And it felt like, it felt like a bunch of white cops rounding up a posse to go do a hit. Mm-hmm. It felt like... Mm-hmm. Now... I've gone back, I've looked at at what's available for public consumption, and apparently my dealer did try to run over a cop or this and that, but then we have all of these experiences of, if not downright fabrications and exaggerations for the necessary use of lethal force, justifications, rationalizations. And so that distrust was one of the first things I encountered, even though I came from a place of privilege, even Mm. though I was fluently bilingual, white passing. I was able to move through worlds of buying narcotics and using narcotics with fewer consequences maybe than other people. But those consequences caught up to me quickly in a way that like my parents' love and my parents' support could not protect me from. And so by the time I was getting arrested on college campuses, because throughout all this, I was able to maintain a certain uh, veneer or charade of being like a normal kid, but I was a walking felony at all times. And so once I got arrested on these college campuses, I felt racialized Mm -hmm. for the first time Mm. because my demographics for the first time, I like, I had only ever answered like my white or black or uh, Hispanic Latino on standardized tests. Mm -hmm. You know, like on my SAT. 
I had never had to use it on jail intake forms like that. I had not, like even when I was getting arrested as a teenager, like it didn't register to me that I was being racialized by the criminal justice system. I was in and out in a matter of hours, released from my own recognizance for petty theft and for little uh, crimes that didn't matter. But this time I wasn't getting out. This time I was gonna have to do some prison time. And so my race became a much more important factor in the experiences that I was having. Even though the jail in which I was originally housed prior to my prison sentence is what, in my opinion, is a well-run jail. By a well-run jail, what I mean is there is an opportunity for people who are incarcerated there to work on their problems outside of just us as a security measure. They have rehabilitation programs. They have rehabilitation programs. They have an extremely low incidence of inmate on inmate crime. They have a zero incidence of inmate on staff crime. They have opportunities for education and it's a very progressive county. As progressive as it gets in Arizona. What, per, what county is that? Coconino. Oh, okay. Now, it was less progressive 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. We were on the vanguard of the opportunity to do rehab. And I took that chance. I took that opportunity. I wasn't able to finish or complete that program at that jail. But it was a space that I didn't realize how safe it was as a jail. I saw you hadn't yet been exposed to how deadly jail can be. I had no idea how deadly jail could be. I mean, well, yes, I did, but only from watching American Me or Blood In, Blood Out. Like, I was a sheltered kid from the suburbs who got into heroin and ended up in jail doing, looking at, like, some pretty serious numbers. My numbers were mitigated through no work of my own. The cops involved in my case got in a DUI, tried to cover it up, lied about it, and all of their hard work had to be you know, tossed out. So I signed on a possession beef for four years and felt lucky about it. Wow. But yeah, I had no idea how deadly jail could be or what jail looked like in the rest of Arizona. You're involved with Just Communities Arizona, mm-hmm. and one of the focuses is this new jail proposal at Pima County. And Uh, Talking about deadly jails, Pima County is one of those. It has a death rate that's four times the national average jail death rate. How is it that you came to be involved with this campaign and looking at this jail that is not a model jail? And by the way, I don't really think there's any such thing as a model jail. Um, I just think there's like a spectrum of bad. That aside, how did you get involved with Just Communities Arizona and come to get involved in this campaign to stop the new Pima County Jail from being built? So my work with Just Communities Arizona actually began prior to their development from the American Friends Service Committee. Uh I've been working in this nonprofit space since 2020. Prior to that, I worked still at a nonprofit, but as a harm reduction outreach worker for some oh, cool. prevention works. And so in that world, I met folks who put me on to the work that American Friends Service Committee Arizona was doing to mitigate the harms of the criminal justice system. So I was invited to speak at the Capitol in Phoenix as uh, one of the speakers for Reframing Justice Day. Mm. And uh, there was an opportunity for folks like me to share their experience and also to meet with legislators who are ostensibly sympathetic to ostensibly the, the calls to reform or mitigate Arizona's punishment system. And that's what we have here. I don't think that anyone's confused as to the broad legislative stance towards carcerality in Arizona. This is a deter through punishment state. We have on average higher sentencing guidelines. We have for sure higher correctional mandates on how much time people have to serve. It's called truth in sentencing. So when a person is sentenced to 10 years in other states, they do three. Yeah. Because they do 30% of their time. 
here in Arizona, you do eight and a half years. And if you don't dot all your I's and cross all your T's while you're incarcerated, you do all 10. You end up doing longer than 10 years because your parole is another few year tail and you could violate that in 12 and a half years on a 10 year bid. Anyway, I digress. The work continued through Dr. Grace Gomez's vision oh, okay. for reframing justice through the narratives of people with lived experience mm -hmm. and through the storytelling aspect and the community building aspect of people who have lived experience and want to contribute that of themselves in a way that is non-exploitative and builds a sense of connection and heals in a way that simply trying to write new policy doesn't. Mm -hmm. However, eventually we saw that the legislative focus was not some place that we wanted to continue. Yeah. Banging our head against a concrete wall. Yeah. I mean, Arizona. the Arizona legislature is controlled by the GOP, but not just the GOP, like the real crazies of the GOP who were participating in the coup. <laughs> GOP is GOPs and GOP. Yes. That's <laughs> true. And so uh, Dr. Grace Gunn has departed to work in Boston University at the oh, okay. Center for Anti-Racist Research. And AFSC AZ turned into just communities. Mm, okay, okay. And so if we're not going to be trying to write policy, then what are we trying to do? And so what we're trying to do is increase a sense of community safety outside of the scope of the criminal punishment system. So not through policing, not through policy. At the micro level, grassroots, people to people, neighbor to neighbor, increasing a sense of community safety one humble step forward at a time. Not trying to change the world, but knowing that we can change our community for the better. Yeah. And a major part of our community's lack of safety is the fact that we have a deadly jail. Mm -hmm. And so it's not easy to let go of uh, a deeply held core tenant. Like no one should be subjected to death at the hands of the state mm -hmm. who has not. And I'm not a friend of the capital punishment. Yeah. I'm anti-capital punishment. Mm -hmm. But at least in a nation of laws, no one should be subjected to death at the hands of the state who has not been convicted and sentenced to capital punishment. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you can go to this jail and die and that it's four times likelier to happen here than anywhere else is not something that we can abide or tolerate. So while our mission is no longer focused on the criminal punishment system, while our mission is now focused on things like book banks in the hood, where there's never been a book bank before, mm. uh, cleanups. Oh my God, I love that. That don't get uh, manicured as quickly after a, a flash flood or um, after a microburst in a monsoon. Solar lighting in an alley so that the kids can play a little later when it gets dark at five o'clock. Those things do not have anything to do with the jail. That's primarily where my work is. But we're not just going to let this one slide, especially not when they're... We're not a wealthy county. <laughs> and we are spending no. dollars as a state annually on a failed punishment system mm -hmm. that is a national disgrace and a deadly humiliating experience for 40,000 people. And so to invest in failed policy, to invest in failed bureaucratic management. Yeah. I mean, even the GOP is GOP or should be extremely upset at how much this can cost. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if their whole thing is limited government, is the opposite of that. So there's really no leg to stand on for this thing aside from a punitive practice that is not supported by the data, not supported by best practices, not supported by successful models in the United States. Like I'm not talking about uh, 
Sweden, Sweden or Nor- Norway. Norway. There's a million counter arguments and, and negative opinions about why those demographics and why those economies and why those uh, cultures are able to pull off something that we can't imagine for ourselves. Which is like a racist it's thing to say. It's, it's literally just like, oh, only white people yeah. get that well, version only of white prison. People were we wouldn't have these problems. Yeah. There's a bunch of blacks in our jails. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that we could ever exactly. So, I mean, I hope I've answered the question at this point about why we're doing Yeah. I, I really like that because there's various grassroots groups that are fighting against the building of this new jail. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, yes, we are advocating for this new jail proposal to be killed, but also many of us are involved in efforts to recreate our social relationships and to create safety outside of the prisons. And those things go hand in hand, like how Mariam Kaba says that abolition isn't about absence, it's about presence. I think that that's the part that you all are working on is the presence, being in the barrios, and creating community safety, like you said, one humble step at a time. And I want to emphasize that because I think that the other side frequently says that abolitionists don't have like a forward or affirmative vision. They think that we're just like anti-prison and police and then that's it. But actually like our goal is to fundamentally transform society and societies and like our relationships to each other such that we don't need to rely on the criminal system for resolving conflict. Indeed. Um, I think that right now with how things are, abolitionist is either a highly aspirational, laudable thing to be for a lot of folks, especially folks who lean progressive or work in spaces like the one that I work in or or write academically in spaces like the one. I mean, geography is about as left as it gets. I mean, I love geography, but I like, I'm like a admirer of academia from afar. Well, I'm also a critique. I'm a critic of academia from afar, to be honest. But yeah, I don't know. The last few years, I've realized like geographers are really rad. I didn't know that. And now I'm like, that's so cool. Well, I mean, like anything, right? Yeah. Exists on yeah. It comes from a. It comes from a history of explicitly colonial, like. Okay, who, like anthropology. Who, who needed to make maps? Who needed? Uh, to know mm, mm, who needed to know wow. Who needed to know that? Mm. Right. It wasn't the people who had lived there. For yeah. Infinite generations and knew it like the back of their hand. So yes, it's an explicitly colonial enterprise that is working out how to economize itself, how to think through its whiteness, how to redefine what it purpose it's going to serve moving forward. Once these questions have, you know, come out, and they're not going back to bed quietly. With that said, abolition, I think, is something that is very trendy to be right now. Yeah. And I think that it has become meaningless in its lost its nuance Mm. because it is something that every progressive has to say they are Mm. and any conservative can point to and say this is what and and not even conservative like liberals to moderates too can be like they're not living in any political reality that we are Mm -hmm. they're in a fantasy land they want to grow corn and hate the police And so let them, right? Because they don't have any clout. They don't have any power and all of that. Wilson's solution is organize, organize, organize. But what does that look like in a space where we have a commitment to essentially abandon the legislative process, right? Yeah. Organize, organize, organize for the sake of a truly radical abolitionist future is to begin right here, right now with the people that you actually know, right? It's not world-changing in its scope if it's not world-changing in its daily interaction. Totally agree. So if you are an abolitionist who's pissing everybody off in your house because of how upset you are about geopolitics all over the world, right? 
and you didn't go pick up your kid because you were firing off this super important tweet <laughs> about, you know, something that has got you really riled up, mm-hmm. then the question is, is that abolition? Is that breaking free from the structures that imprison us in our minds into societal roles such that there is a need for abolition in the first place? Or are we just becoming the friction point for a new status quo? Are we just becoming an... Because history looks fondly at abolitionists who stood up and said, no more slavery Mm -hmm. in this country, Mm -hmm. if they're white. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, Mm -hmm. it does not look as fondly at black abolitionists who said no more slavery. In Mm. fact, it killed them. Mm. And it continues to kill black people at a disproportionate rate. And there is a real abolition. And it begins inside of oneself. And it gives you that freedom to say, I'm going to stand up to something as monolithic and invincible as American criminal punishment. Mm -hmm. We have mastered There's none like ours. Mm -hmm. So what then to do with the political necessity to invest elsewhere than in criminal punishment? And that, I think, is where the language and the rhetoric and the strategy for abolition is so important. Because, like you said, it's very easy to be negative. It's very easy to critique things. I'm going to try and make a career out of it. (laughs) It is much harder. It is much harder to positively state an alternative and open yourself up to critique and to harassment and to uh, death at the hands of of a state that feels threatened. And so that is where abolition is not just like something that you throw up on your Twitter, on your X handle, mm-hmm. X, right? Like a list of nouns that summarize who you are. That's not what abolition. It is being willing to begin today to do something that concretely helps your neighbor because you know that if your neighbor is helped, you're helped. Mm-hmm. It's not about hashtags. Mm-hmm. So funny you say that because that's why I took abolitionist out of my Instagram bio because I forget who I heard it from or who said it, but somebody said abolitionist isn't an identity. Abolitionist is something that you do. And I was like, yeah, I shouldn't need to call myself that. It should just be very apparent from how I move in the world that I'm an abolitionist. And that's why I took it off my Instagram bio. Because I think, like, at first, I was sort of, I thought it was important to include because it was, like, an idea that was still gaining traction. But I think we have reached a turning point where it's become weirdly mainstream, or it's at least present in the mainstream discourse. And I think we are losing a little bit of that nuance about what it really means to be an abolitionist. Like, being a progressive or even having radical values is not the same as being an abolitionist. Like it's a very specific way of being and with other people in the world. I really appreciate that you tease that out because like you said, we are in a moment where sort of every progressive is claiming to be an abolitionist and we really need to clarify what that means. Yeah, because what it means to me Anyway, and, um, and what I aspire to is a world where a community can come together to solve its problems without recourse of violence and without recourse of domination and, without, and where unity is a primary principle. So much so that all other ensuing actions, consequences, conversations, amends that are made stem from the knowledge that without that unity, the whole community crumbles. Right now, I don't think that it's controversial to say that we are in a disunified society. Mm -hmm. 
reading I've done indicates that I am that society, that that society is me. And so if I want to blame the GOP, then I have to question why I'm letting the GOP exist in my heart, in my mind, as an other, as an enemy, as someone who I'm not willing to see as a human being, right? Like they are the evil empire. They are Darth Vader. These are the stormtroopers. I could use other words that would instantly shift this discourse, right? And they are what? The bad guys, right? They're the ones that are oppressing me. And if I'm not willing to abolish my sense of righteousness in the face of that, if I'm not willing to let go of this conditioned response to find a bad guy and eliminate them, then I'm not that much different than those I'm claiming to be better than. That's really deep, and I appreciate you bringing that up because that's something I struggle with is still having the impulse to punish Border Patrol and ICE agents. That's my specific hang-up, especially the Latinx ones. They challenge my abolitionist principles a lot. And I agree with you. That's sort of like the peak of abolition is looking at someone who you could rightfully regard as an enemy and not taking a punitive approach and trying to see them as a human, that's the hardest thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone's abolitionist at the farmer's market. (laughs) Everyone's abolitionist when they're paying dollars for a curated head of lettuce. But it's way harder to be an abolitionist when the chips are down and you're formally incarcerated and you're talking to a county attorney who wants to know what they might do to make their county jail suck less. And that's when you got to like, okay, are you really about it? Because it is counterproductive for those of us who claim abolition to mock and deride the efforts of people who want to reform our justice progressive prosecutors you mean like we shouldn't deride them i mean we can't deride them we can critique them (laughs) it is counterproductive they are yeah like what happened with chester boudin in san francisco like how he was recalled it is wading into political waters means that you are going to stink and be dirtied up because they are confined by what by a system that imprisons them (laughs) I know, but it's just hard to find sympathy for them because they're the power operators in that system. You know what I mean? For the devil, right? There's no need. What there is a need for is a realistic assessment of the constraints of their job. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a realistic assessment and then pushing them to the brink of what they can get done at their job. Mm Mm-hmm. Pushing them past their point of comfort, pushing them well into a position that is untenable for them. That requires a realistic assessment of what's tenable for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to abolish something, then we got to know the limit. And right now, the limit in our county, in our jail, is that we have a realistic opportunity to stop this thing from going down. Mm-hmm. That there is real political will here to stop this thing from going down. $200 million in a broke county. $400 million. $400 million. Oh, I'm only half. I'm definitely underestimating how much that thing costs. Four hundred million. Sheesh. That's yeah. A that's a lot. That, yeah. Of help for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is infrastructure. That is food. That is rehab programs that aren't tied to the prison. That aren't tied to the prison system and that aren't tied to the same tired actors in town who are not able to provide the services that need to be provided. That is opportunities for housing for our unhoused neighbors Mm -hmm. who are suffering more now than at any time in recent recollection. It is not a good time to find yourself out in crisis on the street in Tucson, Arizona. And $400 million would go a long way towards alleviating a lot of that suffering. And a lot of the 
called towards this jail is to relieve certain power blocks in our community of the quality of life crimes that they're experiencing. Why are they experiencing totally. quality of life crimes? Because they own property here, because they have a political will to make their community safer. And because the way that they know how to do that is to get this riffraff somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Our solution towards punitive measures has been geographic. We're going to round up all these people and we're going to move them through space and we're going to restrict their movement to this one location. And that is what I write about. Mm-hmm. That's what I think through. Mm-hmm. Is the mm-hmm. Geographical mm-hmm. primacy of punishment. Yes. That's such a thing. It's the only way we yeah. can manage to think this thing through. It is a heartbreaking lack of imagination. And it's killing people. Yes. Because we are not prioritizing anything other than the security of the unit where we are putting these folks. And by security of the unit, I don't mean the security of the people in the custody of the state. I mean... Make sure these people don't get out. If they die yeah. inside, it's whatever. It's whatever. And they can say it's not whatever, but when there's 39 people mm-hmm. who have died in one year, in one year then it's whatever. Mm-hmm. They can make a big fuss about, you know, and that's why we need the new jail. Why? The doors don't work at the old one? You know, like, it's not a question of a new facility with a new coat of paint. That is not what is killing folks. Mm-hmm. It is a failed drug policy compounded by a failed punishment system compounded by a failing jail. Mm-hmm. And their solution is to build them a new facility. With more beds so they can imprison more people. So that more people can die. Yeah. Because it will correlate precisely with the amount of beds. More beds, more dead people. And you can blame a neutral inert substance like fentanyl. But that is not what's to blame in this case. It is a appalling lack of political will to lower that body count and to make people safe. And it cannot abide in a place that claims to be taking serious steps towards resolving these issues. We are in a politically charged moment And there is will in our political representatives and our elected leaders to do something about this. And there is the traditional adversary, Mm -hmm. which are the vested interests that stand to gain, whether through profit or just through power and having a new shiny jail. And we can take it upon ourselves to care, (laughs) to care that there is an opportunity to do something about this. We can do that. And, uh, you know, the executive director at Just Communities Arizona, Carolyn Isaacs, she cares. She has encouraged all of us as a staff to care. It's not the only reason I'm here doing this podcast, but it's it's an important one, you know, because that's, it is both the most important thing I can do And it is also the only thing I can do, Mm. you know? So it is not too small of an action for me to take. It's like being an only child, right? You're the oldest and you're the youngest. And so this one thing that I can do, which is care and make that care into political action, into supporting the, the, the termination of this plan for a new jail, it's the only thing I can do. But it's also imperative that I do it, that I actually do it. Because if not, these jails are created out of the inertia of our society. Totally. These jails do not happen because the majority wants it. Are just like so powerful. Mm -hmm. They can like make this thing happen, Mm -hmm. shove it down our throat. Mm -hmm. These things happen because like no one cared, dude. Mm -hmm. No one stopped it from Mm -hmm. going down. And not enough people, anyway. I agree with that. I think we see that even with how the Blue Ribbon Commission has 
failed to put out its proposal to the Pima County Board of Supervisors. Like, they were supposed to do it a month or so ago, and they delayed it again. They were supposed to do it this month, and they just didn't. And then it's unclear when they're going to put out that proposal. And I really think that it's the community groups and directly impacted people that have been speaking out against the jail, that have been going to the supervisor meetings, that have been going to rallies, that have been writing op-eds, that have been going on podcasts, that have been speaking out, that has made them stop and reevaluate. Because it's like you said, I think that they really expected nobody to really pay attention to this. And because honestly, this is how a lot of fucked up stuff happens. You know, it's, especially like during the holidays when we're distracted by a lot of other stuff. And I appreciate your pointing out, yes, that we're confronting something monolithic, the American criminal legal system. But also at the same time, our fate is not written already. And we do have power as a community and we can intervene and we can stop things and, you know, at the very least. And then we have to also build things. So. I appreciate you saying that, and I hope the Tucsonans that are listening get more involved in the campaign because, and I feel like I've really come to see this going to the supervisor meetings, the people that show up are the ones who are loudest and who have the most out there views. For example, there's this lady that always goes and calls the supervisors traitors and says that the election was stolen, and she's like trying to get them convicted of treason or something wild. That's who shows up, but that's not at all representative of how the average Tucsonan feels. I really feel like if you ask most Tucsonans, hey, there's $400 million, do you think that we should use it for 1,500 new beds and a whole new jail led by the sheriff that lets people die under his watch? Or would you rather have that be invested in housing, healthcare, the public schools? Streets that won't eat your axle. Yes. Yes. My streets are like sort of okay, but yes. (laughs) Like my friend Denise lives on the east side. They were like fixing the roads out here. It took them like two weeks. And I was like, I bet you if we were in the foothills, they would have had this fixed in two days. My friend Denise was like, oh, well, I honestly haven't ever seen anyone pave our roads. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Privilege. Um, Yeah. And so I just hope that through this conversation, people can realize their own power and can utilize it more. Yeah, because that's what it is, is power. The power of the individual is limited. The power of a collective is much stronger. And that collective can have an outsized political effect. It is not linear. It is not one person has X amount. It is exponential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Once you have about a dozen people intent on something now you're really cooking mm-hmm. and that is not that many people you yeah there's people to come all get covid it's thanksgiving but you can't get them to like come to something that is critically important for the future of the county it's bad math yeah spend good money after bad it is it's heartbreaking that the conversation becomes about how much this thing costs in dollars and not in human lives it is. It's pretty offensive. So like this Blue Ribbon Commission I've been mentioning, they were appointed to provide the supervisors with a proposal for this new jail to be built. And when asked about, you know, how they're going to address the epidemic of deaths in the Pima County Jail, they said it was, quote, outside of the scope of their task. I mean, how much more transparent can you get? Like, they don't care about the people that are dying in the jail. That's beyond what they're thinking about. These are people who have construction companies who will probably personally or in some other way benefit from the construction of this new jail. That's what they're thinking about. They're thinking in terms of dollars. They're not thinking about the lives that will be taken if this new jail is built. And it's, it's, I don't know what the word is. Uh, It's a head scratcher. Because it's just bad policy, right? It's bad policy. Mm -hmm. It's bad optics. It's bad politically for folks who uh, have 
made certain promises to community about what their political intent is, mm-hmm. what their vision is for our community mm-hmm. and for policing and for, uh, what should we call it, prosecutorial oversight of, like, drug cases and making sure that they're not all, like, laid down and sent to DOC. Um, so you're talking about Laura Conover? I mean, I feel like she hasn't fulfilled any of her promises. Any of those promises <laughs> right? And so it's like, do you even care about your job? Well, that's why when the that's why when you were like we can't critique progressive prosecutors, I was like absolutely we can because number one person we need to critique right now is Laura Conover because she built herself as that as that and she sold a bill of goods and I don't believe that she meets the criteria of somebody because what I said yeah you got to be careful sincere right I think or maybe I didn't I don't know we can play the tape back but I said like a county attorney who is sincere and. Oh yeah, that's fair. So she's just not sincere. I don't think that it's um, I don't think it's gonna hurt my credentials or my bona fides to critique her by name and say that she's been a huge disappointment. Yeah. To people who thought that she I'll say a it. change of pace, a change of, of tempo, a sea change in what's possible for prosecutors here in this county. I think that she is textbook status quo political animal who has stabbed a lot of people in the back who worked very hard to get her elected. And whatever hand that feeds her uh, must be more important than the folks in town who voted for her. So disappointing, dude. Just a real bummer, dude. I'm from California, so sometimes my California comes out. It's a real letdown. <laughs> it's a real you know? letdown. Especially for a place that likes to think that we're doing things differently. Well, exactly. That's what that's what pisses me off. We do have a lot of Democratic electeds in this city and in this county. And yeah, a lot of them like bill themselves as progressive. And then at the end of the day, like Regina Romero increases funding for cops. At the end of the day, the Pima County Board of Supervisors is seriously considering giving the sheriff that kills people another jail so he can be in charge of more people. It's, I think it's just because Arizona is, so other parts of Arizona are so conservative that just by saying, oh, well, we're not that, they can make themselves seem like they're progressive when they're not really about it. They're not really doing what they say they're going to do. That's right. And that's why, in my opinion, focusing on them is counterproductive to the stated goals of abolition, which yeah. is the future of liberation for all. Because they're not the ones who can deliver that to us. We're asking them for what they ain't got. And they are spinning in circles trying to manufacture an object that we can hold and say, see, abolition works through political mechanisms and that is not true in my reality Mm -hmm. on december whatever day this is 2023 (laughs) yeah abolition is not in the capitol it's not at the mayor's office it's not in laura conover's office they don't have the means or the tools or the job description to give me what i want which is liberation period so where is it at then, you know? And that's why I get dreaming big and I get that, but like I personally struggle with the give me everything or give me nothing, right? The all or nothing of the rhetoric that we sometimes hear in our abolitionist spaces, that everything now, I don't want to be demeaning of anybody, but you know who else says give me everything now? Little ass kids. (laughs) And I don't say that like little kids have a lot of really good qualities. They do. Really aspire towards, right? Like they are whole people that haven't been beaten down and molded. Oh God, yes. And into something that's just like, doesn't feel fulfilled and is like just going through the motions and questioning the whole reality. Little kids are awesome. Mm -hmm. But give me everything now has never been true in my experience. And so when I want to do something real, it's hard. Like when someone screws me over or steals something from me and my instinctual reaction is to call the police. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't, that's hard. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not hard. It's like I'm a citizen now. Like I'm a square. Like I used to be a gangster. <laughs> I really did. Like, I went I'm from, a citizen. I went from like a little corny kid with a dope habit. And then somewhere along the line in prison, like, I really, like, let myself get carried for a ride, dude. I had my head shaved and my tube socks pulled up, and I was, like, counting, screaming, and now why? And, like, I was doing the most. Doing the most. And at some point, like, I got scared to break the rules again. Mm. Like, here, out in free society. Well, because you have something to lose now. I do, absolutely. You're, like, so, like you got your PhD. I got, like, I got things. I got things at stake now. Yeah. You know? I've got all the little gold stars that this system gives me mm-hmm. to shut me up. Mm-hmm. And they are disciplining me to the nth degree right now. I'm literally in a discipline. Right. right? Like the, the links of our carceral system spread far. Mm. But I try to remember it that like there's actually homies of mine right now doing time. And if they found out that Enrique Olivares Pelayo said something that made it harder for them to get their TV, because I was over here focusing on liberation for all right now, Mm -hmm. when they got a bid to do, if they found out that I stabbed them in the back, because now I'm an abolitionist who, who, who doesn't believe in any sort of reform and Mm -hmm. isn't willing to talk to any of these GOP dudes and who's just like, super about growing artisanal vegetables in his backyard and shit like what <laughs> they like what they, those fools haven't seen a vegetable in like two years mm-hmm. and now i get to like take crazy ass stands about it they're the ones that have to do the time yeah you know they're the ones that are like yo ashford university ain't that bad homie like this tablet's kind of dope and i'm the one who knows that that is a rip-off predatory institution that is not giving them a really, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're the ones like, yo, it gets me out of my cell. Mm-hmm. And that is a that is a arithmetic that weighs heavily on me. Because, like, I'm the one out here getting to do this podcast. You know, and they're the ones that have to take the weight. I really feel that, and I feel like that's why the best abolitionist movements are always organizing with people inside. And, you know, when you're doing that, you can't disregard people's needs. Because it's just, like you said, on a human level, how are you going to be working with someone and they're really suffering and you're just going to ignore it as a person who's outside, you know? It doesn't really make sense. And I appreciate you bringing out these contradictions because sometimes... There's abolitionists who sort of strive for purity and, or yeah, just sort of take a really hard stance, like you said. Like, and I distrust ideologues. Yeah. Because, yeah, because you haven't, I don't know. Devolved into that kind of rigidity and purity test. And like, you got to know the whole screed. Yeah. Back Mm -hmm. languages so that you can be like holier than thou. Like, I stopped, I stopped engaging because i'm no longer talking to the human person in front of me i'm talking to a puppet yeah of someone else's idea that's not original thinking that's not critical thought that's not uh, critical consciousness that's not questioning where things come from and and how we got to be this messed up that's like a really really good mnemonic that you've memorized and that you've let become your personality. Dude. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, like, I'm an abolitionist from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. But, like, I don't want to know about it all the time. Dude. Like, <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, when I'm talking to somebody that I know I'm not going to sway through words, then why talk about it? Mm-hmm. I might sway them eventually through a hug. And through, hey, what's up? And through giving a shit about their day, eventually. Because then when they find out that I'm an abolitionist, and just like this side to the right, like, Mao. (laughs) 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 Then like, then maybe they might like be like, wow, all those little woke dudes at the university might not be so bad, you know? Like, maybe, or maybe not. But like, they're not my, they're not the people I'm going to move anyway. Like, it's Mm -hmm. a waste of time to get to be right about this. I don't want to be right about this. I want to help people. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be right about it. At the level of like discourse or like academic trends. 
I want to be righteous in the sense that people know that Enrique will show up for them mm-hmm. in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and that you don't have to call the cops unless like you were in a bad wreck. Mm-hmm. Just call a tow truck and you can come get me. Mm-hmm. No law enforcement. Mm-hmm. That's my like, maybe I'm super out faced, dude. You know, like maybe. I'm no, I think you're right. No, I think you're right because I think sometimes people just get in unnecessary, like the left gets in unnecessary fights with each other. And I think we just forget, you know, people on the other side, probably some Arizona GOP state legislature members included, want us dead. (laughs) Like all of us, regardless of if you're like a Maoist or whatever. I do think that as a person that has done a lot of like direct legal services for people in detention, I feel like the people that have this other stance of like no reform at all whatsoever don't have contact with people inside because it's just a human thing. How are yeah, you going to disregard another human's needs? I think that it's a, a position that is really only accessible through ideology. Yeah. It is not a position that is tenable through human interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no reform, punishment only sounds real good if you are talking to a bunch of angry, scared folks who want to give you a sword to go defend them because they are feeling shook. Mm -hmm. It doesn't carry any water when you're talking about a society that functions based off of goodwill and based off of doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have it both ways, right? Because what, we're supposed to be America, right? Where people know and look like, I'm naive. I know the history of how much genocide this country was built on, how much indigenous displacement and murder and how much black suffering and how much Latinx suffering. Exploitation, yeah. Exploitation. And then like, they started bringing in like lower and lower classes of whites until they figured out that they had to lump it all together and put it on top of us, you know? Whatever, man, with all that. Like, whatever, dude. Like, go watch a documentary or something, you know? Like, I want to talk about what's possible right now in the United States, a country that espouses freedom and liberation and the aspiration for us to live with dignity and to have, like, the ability to pursue our happiness. And those words inspire me. Like, Mm. I am patriotic. Mm. You know, I love this. That makes one of us. I I love this country. (laughs) I love the potential of this country. And maybe I'm like a kid whose parents, like, abused him or something. And he's like, no, it was a great childhood. It was a great childhood. They needed to spank me so I could learn. But, like, I don't want to give up here. That's really great. I don't cede this, this space to the powers that want to keep me all messed up i refuse because i'm i respect that yeah it's not where i'm at but i respect that (laughs) um so the last question that i asked people this season which might be tied with what you're just talking about but might not is what is something that has been inspiring you lately like what you know it's kind of a hellscape right now a lot of really sad really fucked up things are happening What keeps you committed to the abolitionist fight? What inspires you to stay committed? Um, So I just went on this, like, screed about how I'm American. And, like, I'm so Mexicano también. ¿Sabes? Tengo un pasaporte mexicano. Soy parte de una familia grande, mexicana. Primos, tías que me aman y me quieren en Jalisco y en Baja California. Y soy orgullosamente mexicano. E part of what keeps me in this abolitionist fight is knowing that things can be arbitrarily better or worse depending on a line that is subjective, that can change, that can shift over entire states and transform not just the space, but the culture and what happens when something goes wrong and who you call when something goes wrong. My family wouldn't call the police right. for something right. in Mexico. Right. <laughs> you 
you know? Right. Like, unless you want a bunch of gangsters to show up at mm-hmm. your house and extort you. Mm-hmm. And now that is a system where it is so transparently broken. Right. No one even thinks of calling no the police. No one thinks of calling the cops. You have to resolve your problems as community. If mm-hmm. someone steals from you, then you have to go and ask their primo to parlay and, like, mm-hmm. get your own shit back. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And our system is just as broken. It is just as broken and flawed, and the rhetoric here protects failed institutions, and the political discourse is skewed towards power blocks of folks who are, in my estimation, just as clicked up and just as gangster as anything that I've ever seen. The boys in blue, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The LAPD gang. The literal. Literal. Those are like, what? (laughs) Like, okay. Literal. Yeah. And so what keeps me in the abolitionist fight is knowing that my world Mm -hmm. has changed. My world. I feel free. Mm. I feel liberated. Mm. And that is a feeling that is extremely difficult to articulate to somebody else. It is something that to me is spiritual. Mm -hmm. And that spirituality uh, can seem condescending or trite to somebody who is in the depths of a deep struggle. Mm. Because I'm over here going, <laughs> it gets better, dude. And they're like, I'm fuck you. Mm-hmm. Because you know? mm-hmm. I have felt that way. I have felt that anger. I have felt that sense of like urgent need for something big to change. But my experience as one person is to say that like nothing changes that quickly nothing of value that really transforms the world changes that quickly. It is one little bit at a time and it is much easier to hold ground than to take ground. And so like I refuse to Mm. give up Mm -hmm. what we've already gained and what we've already gained is enough people looking around, asking themselves, is this really what we want to keep doing? We've gained that. It exists mm-hmm. right now. There's a, there's approaching a critical mass of inquiry in our community about what's really going on. And, and what keeps me in the fight is I refuse to cede that. I refuse to be like, man, we didn't get anything done. We're getting so screwed over. They're going to build this jail and then we should all just give up. Like, no, it takes less energy for me to participate in what I really believe in than it does for me to ignore what's in my heart and feel that like pang of conscience and know that I could do something about it. And then like, what, go watch, like, go watch what? Like everything sucks right now. Like the writers, like our bots writing our content right now. Like you have to watch. Oh my, I watch such bad stuff to not get me started. <laughs> you know, like there's nothing. Me personally, I'm entertained, but I'm trash. <laughs> Oh my god! I like I'm not on the high horse, dude. I play Diablo. If you know anything about video games, it's a blizzard. I've never done anything good in like 20 years. They're just like farming intellectual property. That sounds fun. It's fun. I play with my friends, and like I don't have any guilt about it. Yeah. They're you know like it's just like trash content. It is. (laughs) No, it is. It's not like a. It's not like a trend-setting new video game. Anyway, the most important part for me of being an abolitionist is keeping it real real abolition to me is being able to be yourself and so like if some days i'm feeling super about it then i go and i be about it Mm -hmm. other days like i don't have any struggle in me and like i just want to exist then i i have to take that privilege because right now i get to exist yeah i feel that Well, Enrique, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This was an amazing conversation, and I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Maybe when you finish your dissertation. (laughs) So two years from now, you got it. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Bye, Cachimbonas. 
Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do so is to become a Patreon. I don't do ads and that is intentional. I want to feel free and uncensored on the podcast, which keeps folks listening. Please donate through the Patreon to keep the podcast sustainable. Apart from supporting the podcast, which is a worthy goal in itself, you get access to the Lit Review, which are book club style chats with other women of color. I know that the economy is fucked up and you might not have the monies to support the podcast through Patreon now, but there are also 100% completely free ways to support the podcast, including leaving an Apple podcast rating and a Spotify review. Thank you to everyone that has given five-star reviews on Apple and Spotify. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can continue the conversation that we start on the podcast there. Also sending an episode that really resonated with you that you feel like a friend or a loved one needs to hear is an amazing way to keep the podcast visible and gain new listeners. I hope that you all enjoy the podcast and thanks so much for listening. Cachimbonas.